Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome to another episode of Dakota Spotlight. I really appreciate you listening and would like you to know about Spotlight Plus. It is a subscription to Dakota Spotlight that provides bonus content, early access, and ad-free listening, all while supporting my work and the show you love. You can subscribe right in the Apple Podcasts app or visit dakotaspotlight.com. You know, most people who's, who's, you know, when a loved one has disappeared, they're desperate for answers. You know, that just wasn't the case here. It was like, these were people that were, get the f- off my property. And I just remember feeling uh, like lucky that I got out of there in one piece. You're listening to Dakota Spotlight, a production of Forum Communications. My name is James Wollner. This is Season 6, Vanishing Act, The Untold Story of Kristen Deedy and Bob Anderson. And I'm Jeremy Fugelberg, co-producer on this season. A reminder, the disappearance of Kristen and Bob is an ongoing investigation. Everyone should be considered innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. To see photos, videos, maps, documents, and more from our investigation, head over to our podcast website. That's at inforum.com forward slash Dakota Spotlight. Last week, Jeremy and I explored the many ways and many reasons why Bob and Kristen's case sort of fell through the cracks after they went missing on a road trip from Bloomington, Minnesota to Wishick, North Dakota in mid-August 1993. The real investigation was significantly delayed, delayed and derailed for all kinds of reasons. Some of it perhaps just really bad luck. If you recall, we finished up last with the Bloomington, Minnesota Police Department picking up the phone and calling North Dakota law enforcement in December of 1994, 16 months after Kristen and Bob went missing. Jeremy and I have no indication that North Dakota law enforcement had ever been contacted about this case before that call. At that point, the state-run North Dakota Bureau of Criminal Investigation got involved. In this episode, we'll be focusing on what happened next, in the year 1995, when the investigation really took off. We're going to walk you through a whirlwind of investigative activity in Minnesota, North Dakota, in the Logan County Sheriff's Office, and on a farm outside of Wishek. And we'll tell you about a night in December of that year, when a sheriff made Clyde Deedy spend a night in jail. We will also hear more from Dan McDonald, that TV news reporter you heard back in episode one, who flew into the lonely Wishek airport. He started asking questions, visiting farms, asking about Kristen and Bob. Perhaps you'll recall the warning he gave us when he learned we'd be returning to the story, returning with questions, returning to Wishek. Be careful. Be very careful.
That's coming up in this episode, but first, a couple of other things. I want to share our plans for the next two or three weeks, and also, I want to hopefully clarify some things that you've been wondering about from this complicated story. Let's start with the roadmap for the rest of this season, as it now stands. At the time of this recording, we're planning two more regular episodes after this one. So, this is episode 8, and then we have plans to bring you a ninth and a tenth as well, and perhaps some additional bonus material. Next week's episode, episode 9, looks like this. Jeremy and I will be sitting down with a retired homicide detective from North Dakota. We're going to tell him everything we've learned about Kristen and Bob's disappearance. We're going to lay it all out on the table for him and present our findings, submit our evidence, so to speak. Tell him what we don't know, what we do know, how do we know it, and then we'll walk through several different theories and possible explanations for the disappearance. What clues are there for and against each of these theories? We'll ask this seasoned detective what he thinks about the case. Which of the theories does he think is the most likely explanation? And we're also hoping he'll hold Jeremy and me accountable for our investigation. Tell us what we might have missed, what can still be done, what did we do well, what could have we done better. That's next week in episode 9. The week after that, in episode 10, we'll return to some of the many people touched by this story. Bob's son, Chase Anderson, other family members, friends. We'll explore how this mystery has touched and affected so many people to this day. That and more in episode 10. But again, as we've said all along, this is a live and ongoing podcast investigation, so anything could happen at any time, really. If something breaks in this story, this roadmap might change at any moment. Now that you know where we're headed, but before we get into that whirlwind of an investigation in 1995, here's some more information about this story and some clarifications on things. Last week, I asked in the Facebook group, what things need more clarification here? One listener asked for a better understanding of what happened to Kristen's children afterwards. She writes, So did Kristen just live with her dad after she disappeared? No one even questioning it? And where? Wishick or Minnesota? I'm a little confused as to the movements of the kids that weekend and afterwards. I'll do my best to answer these questions one at a time. Yes, the kids lived with their father, Clyde. The divorce was finalized in March of 94, but an initial hearing took place on January 18th, five months after Kristen was last seen. Clyde was awarded sole custody. Because Kristen was not present at the divorce proceedings, the decree states the following. Petitioner is entitled to judgment by default for respondent's failure to appear. In layman's terms, per Minnesota law, Clyde gets what he's seeking in the divorce, including sole custody, because Kristen didn't show up to court. I'll add that nowhere in the divorce decree does it state that the mother, Kristen, is a missing person, or that Bloomington police are involved in looking for her. However, it does infer that her whereabouts were unclear by stating, Kristen Didi, address unknown. As far as anyone questioning that Clyde got sole custody, I don't know. Clyde was their legal guardian, their father. There wasn't much that could be contested, really. And no, we have no indication that other people, maybe such as Mitchell and Deanna's maternal grandparents, the Gables, ever contested the ruling or wanted or sought custody of the kids. Now, regarding where Clyde, Mitchell, and Deanna lived, it's a little fuzzy, perhaps, but the background check we did shows an address in late 1994 in Winter, South Dakota, a four-and-a-half-hour drive south of Wishick. That's where Clyde lives and works to this day. 
However, there are references to Clyde having worked at a chiropractic office in Eureka, South Dakota for a time after he graduated from his studies. And Eureka is only a 40-minute drive from the Dee Dee Farm and Mitchell and Deanna's grandparents. I've heard that Mitchell and Deanna, and I'm assuming Clyde, possibly lived at the Dee Dee Farm for a time. This makes total sense to me. Clyde has sole custody, he's trying to get his practice started, his new career. Why not temporarily move home to Wishick, maybe get help from mom and dad with the kids, and commute to Eureka? Regarding the movements of the kids on that fateful weekend in mid-August 1993, listeners are confused. Well, you know what? So are we. You'll recall there was a family wedding taking place that weekend in Wapaton, about two and a half hours away by car. The information we have is that the kids were at the wedding, possibly taken there by the grandparents from the farm, possibly taken there by one of Clyde's brothers, or maybe by Clyde himself. We've also heard the kids were returned to Wishick from Wapaton by the grandparents on Tuesday. But we also have Tiffany's account of hearing kids in the background at the farm when she spoke with Kristen on Sunday night. All very confusing. I've tried to get clarity on this. I spoke with several of Clyde's siblings this year. One of his sisters, once I told her what I was calling about, refused to speak with me. Well, actually, she said, I don't want to talk to you, and hung up on me. But the other siblings were helpful and talked to me quite a bit. In regards to the wedding and the movements of people that weekend, the siblings I've spoken with don't seem to remember the wedding much. It's all fuzzy. It's all uncertain and quote-unquote a long time ago. Which, that's true, it was a long time ago. And if you're from a big family, maybe you don't remember every family wedding you've gone to. But, and this is just my personal perception on that, as tricky as memory is, I feel like if it was me, if it was my sister-in-law, and she had dropped off the face of the earth, the mother of my niece and nephew, if I knew the Bureau of Criminal Investigation was looking at this as a homicide... And if I'd had almost 30 years to think about it, to talk about it with family members and friends, I'm highly confident that all of my movements and the movements of people around me from that weekend would be fairly cemented into my memory. In fact, the lack of recollection about this wedding in the Didi family even made me question if the wedding actually took place. Could we be wrong about that? But no, not wrong. There was a wedding. I found a reference to it in an old issue of the Wishick newspaper from a week after. I've also left multiple voicemail messages with the bride at that wedding, Clyde's niece, Nicole. Why? Because in 1993, a lot of people had VHS home video recorders and they often filmed weddings, not to mention photographs are often taken at weddings and wedding receptions. So, as you can probably imagine, I was hoping I could get verbal confirmation from Clyde's niece or others or visual confirmation from photographs that Mitchell and Deanna and maybe even Clyde were ever at that wedding. Unfortunately, I never received an answer or response from Clyde's niece. The details of the wedding and the movements of the Dee Dee family between their farm in Wishick and Wapiton, where the wedding took place, is important to us because it would help us understand who Kristen and Bob might have run into at the Dee Dee farm that weekend. The wedding was on Saturday. One of Clyde's siblings told James that, although they don't remember the wedding, if they would have to guess, Clyde's parents would have returned the next day, Sunday, reasoning being that they would have farm work to tend to. Interestingly, when I spoke to Clyde on the phone, he had no recollection of the wedding. Yeah, because from the research we did, it looked like I think there was a wedding that weekend. Um, That I don't know. 
But hey, no matter who you are, dear listener, if you were a guest at that wedding, we'd sure like to talk to you. According to that newspaper article, the wedding was between Nicole Didi and Rob Wilcox at the Valley Christian Assembly Church at Breckenridge, Minnesota, and there was a reception afterwards. That was on Saturday, August 14, 1993. Another thing I want to touch on briefly is about the Gables, Kristen's family, and especially her father, Darwin, who's now deceased. Over the years, after blogging about this story, I've received quite a few emails about Kristen's family, her father and her brothers. People in the Wishick area have told me I need to look closer at them as potentially responsible for Kristen and Bob's disappearance. I just want to let you know we will be looking closer at that in the next episode when we sit down with the detective. People are also wondering if we have been able to speak with law enforcement about this case, if we've tried. Well, real quick on that. Over the years, and again recently at the beginning of this podcast project, I reached out to the BCI agent in charge of the D.D. Anderson case. He didn't answer my call, so I left a voicemail. I simply asked if he would be available for an interview or comments about the case. I did get a call back, but not from him. Instead, it was from Liz Brocker, the public information officer at the Attorney General's office at the state capitol in Bismarck. Liz told me simply, the case is open and ongoing, so the answer would have to be no. One more last question from a listener. They ask about Jeremy's conversation with Clyde Deedy on that bad phone line. They ask, is the music in the background at Clyde's office real? They wonder if it's actually playing or if it's something that we added somehow or some kind of effect. I can assure you we did not add that music or anything else to the conversation with Clyde Dee Dee. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hello, dear listener. This is James, host of Dakota Spotlight, inviting you to subscribe to Spotlight Plus. For as little as $5 per month, you will get the warm feeling of supporting the show and also unlock access to bonus episodes. Get the episodes early and listen ad-free. That's right, no more ads. Apple users can subscribe to Spotlight Plus Standard right in the Apple Podcasts app. If you want to dive deeper and get even more exclusive benefits, subscribe to Spotlight Plus Premium or Spotlight Plus Ultimate. Go to dakotaspotlight.com for more details. Finally, in 1995, the investigation into Kristen and Bob's disappearance took off in North Dakota. The case landed first in the lap of Stephen Englehart, sheriff of Logan County. I spoke with him once or twice over the years, but he never gave me any information stating that it's an ongoing investigation. The Anderson family, however, they did meet him, and they discussed the case, too. He was present that day in 2015 when I was sitting at the White Maid Diner across the street from the sheriff's office in Napoleon, waiting for Bob's loved ones to meet with me. When Englehart got the case in North Dakota, he asked for assistance from BCI. While I don't know a whole lot about how he handled everything, I do know this one thing. In December of that year, 1995, 
He put Clydeedy in jail for a night. We'll get to that later and hear from Clyde too. But if we approach that year, 1995, in a chronological manner, it looks like this. April, Bob Anderson's father, Aldine, meets with BCI agent Mike Quinn. From our reporting, it seems that Mike Quinn was the agent most dedicated to solving this crime. In fact, he's the same agent that will meet with Chase Anderson 13 years later, when Chase finds out his father was a missing person. Chase had this to say about Agent Quinn. The original investigator, Mike Quinn, and he has a heart, I would imagine, up to today still. Um, I talked with other investigators that were passed on the cases and and he was still supposedly going in and meeting, you know, checking out the case files even after he's retired. Um, it's a hard man to reach, though. Chase is right. Mike Quinn is a hard person to run down. A few years ago, I tracked down his phone and address in North Dakota. I never managed to get him on the phone, so one day I finally just stopped at his house and rang his doorbell. He came to the door and heard me out, then said, Nope, can't talk about that case. All I can do is refer you to the Bureau. In May of 1995, Agent Quinn talks to Bob's brother, Dean Anderson. Also in May, for the first time ever, Clyde Deedy is interviewed. We don't have any information about how that first interview went with Clyde. But then later that year, this happened. BCI started searching the Deedy farm for clues. One of Clyde's siblings confirmed this for me over the phone. They said, I know they looked around the farm and came up with nothing, so... But it seems that Mike Quinn and his crew at BCI did much more than just look around. Chase Anderson remembers it this way. I know they did aerial shots with a special camera to look over the property. From what we can understand from our interviews and reporting, they did make an important discovery there. They found items that may have belonged to Bob Anderson. Where on the DD farmstead were these found? I'm not sure. Over the years, I've heard all of the following. In a barn in a burn pit, in a rock pile. According to the notes from the Andersons, cadaver dogs were also brought in. When Anderson family members visited with investigators in 2015, they were shown a photograph of some of the items. To see the photo, head over to inforum.com slash Dakota Spotlight. The photo appears to be of some children's toys, a small television, and what looks like a VCR player. Here's Diane explaining why a TV might have been in Bob's van. Bob kind of lived out of that van, or at least he did that weekend. But perhaps most important to note is the other discovery. Allegedly, Mike Quinn and his crew at BCI found Bob's jacket at the Didi farm, too. This is what we know about that. These are our sources regarding the jacket. In October of that year, when that reporter, Dan McDonald, flew to Wishick for his story, he reported the following, and I quote, And when authorities searched the farm of her ex-husband's family, they found some clothes in a barn, clothes they think belonged to Bob Anderson. We'll be hearing from that reporter at length in just a moment, but notice the wording. They found clothes, they think they belonged to Bob Anderson. That same news broadcast also states they spoke with Clyde Deedy back then about the jacket, and he called the claim nonsense. When Jeremy spoke with him recently, Clyde ended the call before we could ask him about the jacket, and Clyde has turned down opportunities to speak with us again. Throughout the seven years I've been involved in this story, the Anderson family have been consistent in their retelling of the discovery of the jacket. They say Matilda, Bob's mother, 
was shown a jacket by law enforcement and she identified it as her son's. She had done some kind of sewing or mending on the garment herself. Here's Bob's siblings, Diane and Dean, speaking with me in Minneapolis in October of 2021. Where Bob's jacket was also found. Uh, It was a jacket that uh, my mom uh, stitched up and repaired for him. And she recognized it right away. So it's a it's a jacket that your mother did some sewing on. Is that right? That's correct. Like a patch or something. Yes. And that jacket was shown to your mother at some point by law enforcement. Yes. Where did they get this jacket? You know, I could be wrong. I thought they got it in the rock rock hole or pit on the Dee Dee farm. That's how I understood it. It was uh, like on the dump uh, in that farm. Same place the toy toys were found and other belongings. That's the information Jeremy and I have gathered about this jacket. Then in 1995, Clyde called it nonsense. WCCO reported that law enforcement thinks it belongs to Bob, and the Anderson family have clear memories that their mother positively identified Bob's jacket when shown to her by police. As I mentioned earlier, in December of 1995, Sheriff Engelhart threw Clyde Deedy in jail for a night. But before that happened, in October, WCCO television reporter Dan McDonald got on that plane and headed to Wishick to ask questions. Unfortunately, we've not been able to get anyone at WCCO to grant us permission to play the audio from Dan's news report. But perhaps we have something better, a gripping and in-depth interview that Jeremy did with Dan McDonald. McDonald shares how he heard about the case, why he felt it was important to report on, what Wishick was like, and he shares more about his visit to a farm in Logan County. The Deedee Farm, that place that people like State Trooper Meitinger and Larry Gable say Kristen and Bob were headed to before they fell off the face of the earth. Well, at that time, I was a reporter for WCCO Television in Minneapolis, and I had done a lot of reporting about domestic violence cases. And because of that, uh, uh, someone with the family and actually someone who had worked with Kristen uh, in in a domestic violence shelter, I believe, had reached out to me and said, look, you need to look into this case. This this woman um, was in a troubled relationship with her own family and her or ex-husband's family at the time. And and she had she's missing and no one seems to care. Like no one, there seems to be no real interest in in looking for her or finding out what happened to her. And um, you know, we're very very concerned that that there's foul play involved in that, and that people just don't disappear. And all of it pointed to the fact that they had made a trip to Wishick, North Dakota, and there was a lot of suspicions revolving certain members of 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 their families that that they may have been involved in some way, shape, or form in their disappearance. And so we decided, well, let's go there and see if we can find anything out. It wasn't a high-profile story in the Twin Cities. I mean, people weren't talking about it. It wasn't getting covered. So I had to to make the case with my uh, you know news director, say, look, can we go and dig deeper on this story? I, I think there's something here. And we, you know, fortunately, the, the the station had a lot of resources. We had a helicopter, and we actually had a a, a plane. 
It's not it's not a terribly long trip by plane. I mean, we went the same day and did the story that night. So part of it too was here was this person was she really a, a, a you know a resident of the Twin Cities or was she a visitor from North Dakota? So like who cares? You know, like it's not really a local story. So there was some of that, you know, and you know it for me, you know the the subject of of you know it, all kinds of issues as it relates to domestic violence was of interest to me. In my view, it was like to to just have two people vis- disappear off the face of the earth with no explanation and a lot of suspicious kind of, um, you know, theories swirling around the case, it, it, it was intriguing to me. I wanted to learn more. I wanted to find out, was there a way to, you know, could could my reporting help solve the mystery? And unfortunately, um, it you know, I wasn't able to, to really dig up much. And I was pretty frustrated with the fact that you know, there was some, you know, the big story that was the big disappearance case when I lived there was a case you guys all know about, and that's the Jody Husentruitt story. Breaking in here for a quick note for listeners, Dan is talking about the Jody Husentruitt case. To fill you in, she was a native of Minnesota, uh, working as a television news anchor for KIMT in Mason City, Iowa. She disappeared on June 27th, 1995, so a few months before Dan went to Wishick. Police had found signs of a struggle outside of her apartment, and it uh, obviously got a lot of media attention and coverage. Still unsolved to this day, she was declared legally dead in 2001. Okay, back to Dan. Right, she was the anchor woman, and then a friend, a colleague of mine, did a ton of reporting on that case. Well, you know, she was this, you know, um, beautiful, you know, news anchor, well known, uh, all the rest of it, and 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 so that case got just tons of publicity, but someone who's kind of, you know, from a tough background in, 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 in some tough relationships and not well-known, not famous, you know, all those kinds of things, you know, they don't get that attention, right? They're just not, people aren't as interested in that story. Like they're, you know, as they would be a beautiful, you know, up and coming anchor person, you know, to me that anytime someone who's, um, you know, disappears, um, you know, these are people, you know, that if in our reporting, we can help to shed light and, and help, help to solve the case. We're doing the service. I'd never been to a place that looked like that, you know, where it was just, there was like no trees and it was just flat and it was, it was just for the, as far as the eye could see, these farm fields and, you know, dirt roads with no signs. And it was just so rural and so small town that I, it was, it was like, it was like, you, it was as if I landed on the moon. It was just a really, really isolated place. I mean, it's just very rural, very, very much in the middle of nowhere kind of a place. The airstrip was 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 nothing more than a strip. There wasn't even a building there. Well, there was a building, but a very small little building where you signed in on a log when you took off or when you landed. There was no nobody working it actively. There was no like air control, air traffic or anything like that. The residents, they were on dirt roads. There were known street names on these roads. They were basically numbered. Very, very, very rural and almost no population. It was a very memorable trip because it was scary. I'll be honest with you.
you know, primarily our goal was to try to talk to um, her ex-husband or his family members because there they she had traveled there with her with her then boyfriend, um, and I my recollection is they were seeking um, to resolve some issues as it related to custody and the divorce and some other things, and you know, no one ever saw her again, and. Um, that was concerning. And so we just, we thought, you know, as part of the story, we wanted to go to where, where the story was and where she had, uh, had apparently last been seen. There's that whole thing about there was, they did a search of the property and they found some fault that they thought was Bob's clothing. And, and their, you know, their answer was, that's nonsense. It's not true. And maybe it is because had it, if there was a way to prove that, that's pretty compelling evidence, right? That would tie at least the family to, you know, there's there's some tie here too. I mean, I don't I know I don't know how his clothing would end up on their property. That makes no sense. We weren't expecting to get you know a warm reception, but I was a little taken aback by the reception that we did get. We went to a to to the home that you know we were told he might that Clyde Deedee might be staying at, which I believe was his family home. And when we got there, there was a gentleman in the driveway in the road leading up to the to the house uh, in a truck and just, you know, kind of confronted us. We drive up, I walk out and say, hey, I'm a reporter with WGO Television. Um, I'd like to ask you uh, about this, about Kristen's disappearance. And, and there's a lot of people concerned about her and her and where and her whereabouts. It was hostile. It was you get off our property. We have nothing to say to you. Um, if you don't leave, uh, we can make you leave. So, and look, I, you know, I respect the fact that people have a right not to speak to you. And I wasn't pushing them. I was like, okay, fine. I, I just, you know, we're working on the story. We want to give you an opportunity to tell your side of the story. Um, I understand. We'll get our stuff and leave. And you know, you're damn right. You will <laughs> was kind of what we were met with. So, um, I don't want to overread it. I don't know, you know, those folks at all. They just, they wanted nothing to do with me when I came rocking up with a TV camera to talk to them about this disappearance. That was clear. And said, you know, uh, you need to get off our property. We don't, we we have no, you know, you're trespassing. Leave us alone. We don't want to talk to you. Get the f- off my property. We don't, you know, we're not talk, talk, talking to you. Who are you to come asking me questions? Get off the f- property or... I, I can, you know, I can make you get off my property. It was F-bomb laden stuff. It was, you know, very, very threatening. Yeah. Um, and I said, like, I'm a reporter and I'm working on this this case and this this missing person situation. And they were like, we, we know what you're working on. You need to leave us alone. We don't have anything to add to that. So Wishek is a small town. Uh, word travels fast in small towns. I, I just want, do you think he was there waiting for you? Do you think they expected you? Yeah, I do. I think someone had told him, look, there's some reporter in town. He's asking, you know, he's from Minneapolis. He's asking a lot of questions about, you know, the disappearance and the case. And, you know, I, I don't know that as a fact. It just seemed like they were pretty much ready for us to to to, to show up at the house. And when we did, they were pretty much ready to tell us to go away. Were you worried for your safety at any point here? Yeah, yes, I was. To see that that reaction, they'll told you, you know, that is that is information, right? The fact that, you know, most people who's who's, you know, when a loved one has disappeared, they're desperate for answers. You know, they're reaching out to the media. They're wanting to generate publicity. They want to 
they want to raise awareness that hey, you know, we you know, there's somebody we care deeply about and they're missing and we want to solve the mystery. We want to find them alive. We want to that just wasn't the case here. It was like these were people that were, you know, they, they didn't see any 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 reason to talk to us or participate or cooperate with us or anything. They 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 viewed us as, you know, these intruders, these nosy people. We don't want anything to do with you. As we went around town, you know, working on the story, talking to the police, talking to other folks, uh, it felt like someone was following us. There was a, you know, there was a, always someone watching us from a distance from a pickup truck, and and we got the feeling that we were we were being, you know, surveilled basically. But again, I I don't know if that's true either. Maybe I was just, you know, a little paranoid after my my interaction with the family was very unpleasant. Did you recognize them at all, or did, did they, were they the, no. the Dee Dee family no. member you'd spoken you know, with? And, and, no, I don't. It, it wasn't. It was a younger person than the person I spoke with with the family. Um, the, the person that I talked to at the at, at the house was an older gentleman, probably you know sixties. Um, and the person that was in the other pickup truck that was following us around, just from a distance, appeared to be someone more in their thirties or forties, but. Um, that's you know hard to place their age you know at that distance, but it did seem like it was it was not the same person, and it was seemed to be a younger person that was sort of you know monitoring our activities when we were on the ground. You know, on a story like that, you come in, you fly in, and you only have four or five hours on the ground before you have to leave. So we were trying to cover as much ground as we could. So we were, you know, we were hitting several stops along the way. So it wasn't like we just sat in one place. There was someone, you know, outside the door that we thought was kind of watching us to see what we were doing. It was like the four or five different stops we made. There's, there was always this this pickup truck that seemed to be, you know, quite interested in what we were doing. Huh. That's creepy. <laughs> it, it was. It was. It was creepy and, you know, certainly made us feel uneasy as we were trying to report the story that we were certainly not welcome in this town. And it was like, you know, uh, it just was... It just felt a, a little, a little bit creepy and, and ominous to have, to feel like you were being watched when you were just trying to do your job. I think you talked to her immediate family as well, right? Because I, I saw from that same segment there, you were talking to a a gentleman wearing a, a, a cap, like a farmland cap or something. There was a younger kid around. It looked like you guys had an actual conversation that you you caught on camera. Um, we did, we did, we did. Yeah, I do. I do remember speaking to a member of her family. I don't remember if it was um, her brother or somebody, but, um, you know, that they were, you know, very, very heartbroken uh, that, sh- that, that you know, she was missing and her, bo- her boyfriend was missing and it was all very suspicious. And it just didn't, nothing, nothing added up to them, you know, that she had children and a life and She's not the kind of person that just would just, you know, run off into oblivion and and leave, you know, leave her family members or her children and et cetera with no explanation that they were very convinced that this was the result of foul play and that someone had harmed her. And um, I don't think they had any any like false hopes of, oh, we're going to find her. I think I, I find her alive. and Maybe she just went, you know, for a long vacation. It wasn't that at all. It was like, you know, she's missing and we suspect foul play and we're deeply concerned. You know, we're not completely losing hope, but, you know, we, we, we fear the worst. And they weren't 
kidding themselves. They didn't feel like, oh, you know, she's she's taking a trip to, you know, to find a new life. They were they were of the mind of, you know, this is very very disturbing. This is scary. You know, uh, we're we're worried about her about her and her safety, and we fear the worst. You know, we we want to know what happened. You know, we're we're heartbroken. That 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 was my recollection of. Of, of like the kind of reaction any family would have if a member of your family was suddenly just to disappear. We want to find out what happened to her. You know, we're, we're, we're worried. Now, did you have a sense that you got followed back to the, back to the airstrip there? Yes, we did. And we talked about it. We said, Oh, looks like our friend is, is following us all the way to the airport. Now at a good distance, it wasn't somebody like tailgating us. You know, it was like, you know, there was members of whoever family, following us in a, in a truck, pretty threatening to kind of like run us out of town. And, um, so, you know, it was, it was, it was pretty, pretty frightening, you know, pretty memorable from that perspective. And we, you know, we got on the plane and, uh, and left and felt like we didn't really, we, we didn't really uncover any new information that would be helpful in the case. And, you know, once we went to the airport and started unloading our gear, that car, the, the vehicle turned away and, and drove off. So they probably, saw what they wanted to see was that we were leaving and they wanted us to leave. So has that ever happened to you before in covering anything? No, you know, I worked as a, as a reporter for about 20 years, covered a lot of stories that involved murder mysteries and those kinds of things. And, and, um, had been in some interesting situations, but I'd never had felt that feeling like, man, we're being watched, you know, everywhere we go, someone's watching us. And, and that's why it was, it was something that stuck in my memory. And I, you know, because it was, you know, it was very unusual. It was, I was going to say, what's the, after getting followed to the airport, what's the feeling in the cockpit once you're in the, once you're, once you're in the air? We were thinking, uh, you know, we just put our lives in danger for what, you know, we didn't find anything out. And I just remembered feeling, uh, like lucky that I got out of there without, you know, in one piece. It, it was, uh. A place I was really happy to leave. Like I don't ever, I don't ever really want to go back to that place again. As we've learned, it seems BCI agent Mike Quinn worked this case hard, especially in 1995, traveling to Minnesota to speak with the Andersons, organizing cadaver dog searches at the Didi farm and aerial photo searches. The next year, in 96, he was still working the case. I found an article in the Wishick Star newspaper from June of 1996 with a photo. It was at a place near Wishick called Lear Dam, that's L-E-H-R. The article states the following. The Bureau of Criminal Investigation brought three two-man diving teams to the Lear Dam June 4th to search the water there for clues surrounding the August 1993 disappearance of Kristen Joy Deedy, a former Wishick resident who had been living in Bloomington, Minnesota, and her friend Robert Anderson of St. Paul, Minnesota. The couple had come to Wishick to visit relatives and disappeared while in the area. BCI agent Mike Quinn declined to comment on what brought the investigation to the Lear Dam area, and while nothing of value to the case was found while the star photographer was at the scene, law enforcement officials would not say if anything was discovered that would help solve the mystery. That same year, 1996, there was more in the local newspaper, the Wishick Star. We want to thank Dylan Bender at the Wishick Star for sending us these articles recently. In April, the Star published a missing persons poster and a reward with a photo of Bob and Kristen. The poster states that Crime Stoppers had set up a $1,500 reward and that Bob's parents had put up an additional $5,000. In 
In a follow-up special report article on April 17, 1996, the Star reported that Logan County Sheriff's Department had helped distribute the poster on behalf of the Andersons. The article goes on to report the details of the case, almost entirely a recap of Dan McDonald's WCCO-TV reporting. But they also interviewed Bob's father over the phone. Again, thanks to Wishick Star for sharing this article with us from April 17, 1996. Aldine Anderson told the Wishick Star that he originally thought Dee Dee and his son might have simply run off, possibly to Canada, to get away from their responsibilities. Although he was unclear about what changed his mind, he said it was unlike his son to do something like that, and he began trying to track down places he had lived and people who knew them. He made visits to the Wapiton, North Dakota, and Breckenridge, Minnesota area where Kristen had once lived. However, he never came to wish it. He went to courthouses to check various public records and called people who could possibly provide information. It wasn't until two years after the disappearance that he learned of the van being found abandoned, he said. He said he has informed Bloomington law enforcement authorities of his every move involving the case and shared information he's obtained with them. His decision to finance a $5,000 reward is the next step in trying to piece together the circumstances surrounding the disappearance of Dee Dee and his son. One thing the article doesn't mention, and they probably didn't know about it, is about four months before the article was published, Clyde Dee Dee had been thrown into the Logan County Jail for a night. The Anderson family told me about this years ago. They said that investigators told them Clyde Dee Dee had to spend a night in jail at the sheriff's office in Napoleon, North Dakota. Remember, Napoleon is about 20 minutes from Wishick, in the neighboring Logan County, the same county that the Dee Dee Farm and Gable Farms are located in. The Andersons told me that Sheriff Englehart had taken Clyde in and asked for a hair sample, and maybe something else, possibly fingerprints. Clyde refused, and somehow, it's unclear on what charges exactly, Englehart made him stay the night in jail. Here is Dean Anderson, Bob's brother, talking about it. Although he's off by one day, Clyde was not brought in on Christmas Eve. He was released on Christmas Eve, 1995. The sheriff, the sheriff that was uh, in charge when, when they went missing said that um, on Christmas Eve, he brought Clyde into jail and they, they wanted to question him. And, he, and he, I think he spent the night in, in jail on Christmas Eve. And here is Chase Anderson again with his recollection from his visit to the sheriff recalling Clyde's night in jail and Bob's jacket allegedly found on the Dee Dee farm. So when me and the, my Anderson side of the family went out there, um, my Uncle Dean, I think Debbie was there, Diane, her husband, um, we all sat down with the sheriff of Logan County and then the new BCI investigator. And he did spend one day at the Wishick Jail, the Logan County Jail. Um, Napoleon, yeah. Yep, in Napoleon. And that was brought up because they even walked me past the uh, the jail cell where he was he stayed stayed for a night, um, but they said they still had the jacket that they confiscated from Clyde's farm that they found in the burn pit. My co-producer Jeremy Fugelberg asked Clyde about this night in jail when he spoke with him on the phone. You know, what I, from what I hear, you've gotten uh, a lot of questions over the years, and uh, I believe the police have talked to you quite a few times. Isn't that right? Sure. Now, I even, uh, there's a record of them tossing you to jail for a night in Logan County in 95. Can you tell me what that was about? Pardon me? So we've got a, a jail record. Uh, it looks like 
they put you in jail in Logan County in 1995, just before Christmas, or a couple days before Christmas. Oh, yeah, they were just squeezing me for information, and they thought if they put me in jail, gave me a taste of that, that I might give up. Um, one of the things they wanted was a hair sample, which I was uh, reluctant to do. Thought it was an infringement, but hmm. I finally did allow them to do that, and then they let me go to go home. Hmm. How is that? I, I mean, just facing that kind of attention from them, how has that affected your life over the years? Affected my life? Yeah. Well, after they were satisfied, there wasn't any continuation of issue. So there was no effect on my life. I'd like to point out something about Clyde's night in jail, or more precisely, the accuracy of the information that I got from the Anderson family, and how it aligns with Clyde's version. Remember, I said I was told this over the years by the Andersons, who in their turn got the information from law enforcement about Clyde spending a night in jail and a hair sample being requested. Clyde just confirmed this for us, didn't he? One of the things that's difficult with a story like this is trying to understand how credible sources are, how well memories are, the accuracy of information. Clyde's night in jail and the detail of the hair sample, now confirmed by Clyde himself, makes me feel even more confident that the information the Andersons have gathered over the years and shared with Jeremy and I is information that can be considered highly credible. It makes me more confident than ever that other pieces of this big puzzle are highly accurate as well, the ones that came to Jeremy and me via the Andersons from investigators. Things like Clyde's night at the Ward Hotel and the items found on the farm. I'm going to leave you now with some more thoughts from Dan McDonald, the WCCO reporter. Because I moved back to Nashville, you know, and went back to the station I was working at. I was surprised no one else, like, picked up on the story in the Twin Cities after I had done some work on it. Just like this story that nobody, yeah, nobody really covered. You know, it's just a sad, tragic, it's awful. You know, know, it's just an unresolved mystery that that haunts people. And I, you know, I I just think it's heartbreaking on so many levels. And, you know, it would be great, uh, not probably not a happy ending story, but... I think it would at least provide some closure to folks if they could ever really find out what actually happened to these two people and to solve the mystery. It's not going to heal the broken heart. It's not going to heal their their pain, but it at least could provide some measure of closure. So, I, you know, I, I look at it from afar. I just, I'm really rooting for, the, for you guys as you cover the story and for the law enforcement to, to solve the mystery. Next week, Jeremy and I will be sitting down with a homicide detective going through everything we've learned and asking him for his thoughts on it all. Still to come in Vanishing Act, the untold story of Kristen Deedy and Bob Anderson. Certainly with the questions from the police, I have to ask, did you kill Kristen and Bob?
Dakota Spotlight is a production of Forum Communications. Remember, the investigation into what happened to Kristen and Bob remains an open case. Everyone is innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. If you have any information about this case, contact law enforcement at the Logan County, North Dakota Sheriff's Office. The number is 701-754-2495. If you like this show and want others to discover it, please consider leaving us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts. And why not join the Dakota Spotlight Facebook group? Just search Dakota Spotlight on Facebook. Thank you so much for listening. To support my work, get early access, listen ad-free, and much more, please consider subscribing to Spotlight Plus. Apple users can even subscribe right in the Apple Podcasts app. Learn more about Spotlight Plus at dakotaspotlight.com.